This is Mairead Painter with Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. I am joined today by Lori Smintenka at Consumer Voice. This is the National Consumer Voice and Advocacy Program um, here within our country. So Lori, thank you for being here with me today. I don't want to let you introduce yourself and a little bit about um, the Consumer Voice. Sure. Hi, Mairead. Thanks for having me today. Glad to be with you. The National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care is a national nonprofit advocacy organization. We're based out of Washington, D.C., but we are national in the work that we do, and we work with and on behalf of people receiving long-term care and services. Our focus is on promoting quality care, quality of life, and the rights of people that receive long-term care services, whether they live in a nursing home, assisted living facility, or in their own home. Awesome, thank you. And so the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program works really closely with you guys. Um, I want to first apologize, it might be a little echoey today for people, and you'll hear um, Finny barking a little bit. They're used to hearing Finn every once in a while. Um, so I'm gonna room with little furniture. So just wanted to put that out there. But um, Lori, I just wanted, first I wanted to thank you for your partnership with State Ombudsman across the country and education and outreach that you do to help make sure that we stay informed on topics that are happening federally and offer us support in our individual states. And you guys have been just amazing throughout the pandemic. So thank you for that. Well, the Ombudsman program is really critical for the work that we do for protecting residents and providing information and advocacy services. It's my very favorite program that exists. And so it's always a pleasure to be working with you all. That's why I think it's so important to do information sessions like this, because often when we talk to individuals that we serve, they don't know about either group. And they might yep. be receiving long-term services and supports or it's new to them. You know, just making sure that people have access to the information and know how to how to contact you guys. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about one, how people can get in touch with the consumer voice. What kind of things should they be looking, thinking about when they're um, reaching out to you? Like what kind of things could you help them with? Sure. So um, they can reach us. The best way to reach us is through um, our website or through email. Um, they can contact us at through www.theconsumervoice, all one word, dot org. Um, and we have a lot of information there for consumers about rights, about quality of life, about what to look for in a long-term care facility, um, about where to go for help if you're having problems with your facility, about the latest news or legislation that's being worked on on Capitol Hill. So we've got a lot of information there that people can use um, not only to inform themselves about long-term care, but also to advocate for themselves um, to get the best possible care for either themselves if they're the person receiving services or for a loved one that might be living in a long-term care facility, for example. Um, people can also email us at info, I-N-F-O, at theconsumervoice.org, and a staff person will respond to them. Awesome. And I will make sure um, when people look at the podcast on the internet. We'll make sure that your direct links are attached as information below so people can get to you. Thank you. Um, I know that I thought it was really awesome during the, even before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, the way that you all were able to get information out so we could start some of these grassroots advocacy um, initiatives to move things forward that really, I think, helped uh, call attention to and highlight the issues and concerns that we were seeing 
during the pandemic, but I don't know, right? I think they've been issues and concerns since well before the pandemic. Yes, uh, the pandemic uh, impacted people and highlighted some of those things, but I don't necessarily think that they're new. Issues like staffing, workforce development, um, infection control measures. Do you, do you feel Absolutely. So- yeah, absolutely. I think all of the things that um, we saw during the pandemic and frankly are still seeing because, you know, we're not finished with the pandemic yet. Um, they're really issues that have been longstanding areas of concern that we and others like ombudsman have been working on for decades. Um, nursing homes particularly are the ones that we've been focused on, but they are inherently short-staffed. It's been a problem that has existed for a very long time. We don't have national staffing standards in long-term care facilities. Some states have standards, but we've We recently did a report that showed that those aren't adequate in terms of meeting recommended levels um, for what it should be. Um, But staffing, um, infection prevention practices, um, uh, imposition of good care practices, all of those things are areas where nursing homes really need to improve. And what the pandemic did was really shine a spotlight on problems that we've been seeing for a very long time in long-term care. Um, And it's been a real opportunity to really start a new policy discussion around ways that we could improve care and improve quality of life for people that are living in facilities. Um, We do know that residents have been the most affected um, of any population that lives in this country. Um, Of all of the people that have been impacted by COVID, nursing home residents, um, almost one in four um, have died as a result of COVID and tens of thousands more from other issues like isolation and neglect and things that go along with that. So it's been very tragic and traumatic for people living in long-term care facilities. And it's something that we really need to be focusing on. And that's where our advocacy has centered. You guys have been a force there. When we're looking at, you know, stuff coming up, I think right now, the the biggest concern we saw throughout the pandemic that we heard about from residents was the isolation. The guidance that was put in place, I think in a way, Really, it was very thoughtful in the beginning to keep people safe from an infection that we thought might be a period of weeks that we soon found out was going, we're still dealing with, and that the unintended consequences related to the social isolation, the emotional isolation from family, from friends, really residents spent about 18 months just in their rooms. And we saw that that took on top of the, um, the risks of the infection. At this time, visitation is open. And I know across the country, residents are supposed to have access to the uh, visitors of their choosing at the time of their choosing. There are some parameters in place, but it it really is much more open than it was a year ago at this time. But we've been hearing a lot of concerns related to that, um, related to the risks, related to what might happen. And I know you and I both feel very strongly that we need to allow people to continue to have access. Any suggestions for residents or family members related to visitation? You know, visitation, what we found is, I mean, not only is it a right of the individual who, you know, lives in the facility and and they should have the right to determine who comes to see them or not, um, but when when visitation was restricted at the beginning of the pandemic, it, it was done, as you mentioned, 
we thought it was going to be for a very short window of time, maybe just a couple of weeks. We all thought this would be over in two weeks, right? When we started, you know, talking about COVID. But what we found was that restricting the visitation, and that meant no family members were allowed to go into the facilities, no friends, no informal caregivers, no members of the community. What that did was really isolated the residents and it put an additional burden on staff um, because the other thing we found out from visitation is that families were providing a lot of informal care to the residents, which really made up for the fact that there haven't been enough staff that existed to provide the care and services. And when you took away those family members, not only were residents isolated and experiencing the anxiety and the loneliness and the depression that came along with not being able to spend time with their family members, but many of them were not receiving care and services that many of the informal caregivers or family members were providing to them. So that that became a real issue and we saw significant neglect and decline among residents over this time of the pandemic. People having extreme weight loss, developing pressure ulcers, developing contractures, losing the ability to engage with people or speak, you know, lots of things that we saw. Um, But the other piece of it is that there, there haven't been enough staff, you know, certainly to provide the care, but the, the restrictions on visitation didn't keep the, the COVID out of the nursing homes. It was still spreading very widely throughout facilities across the country because staff were continuing along their day-to-day lives. They were still coming and going. Um, And while we all were asked to keep ourselves as isolated as possible and wear masks and and follow proper infection prevention, the fact of the matter is that staff were still bringing it into facilities to a great extent. Well, as we look now at Um, at visitation and the fact that families are now able to go back in and are providing some of those additional supports again for people. And we've been talking like you have to family members that actually are in there and and, um, helping to feed their loved one again and helping to make sure that they're combed and dressed properly and receiving some of the services that they might not otherwise be providing. We can't go back to that time a year and a half ago now, almost two years ago, where people were not getting the services. The fact of the matter is that now um, we're facing a greater staffing shortage than we did even two years ago. Um, A lot of staff have left either because they were sick or have left for other positions. There's been high turnover. Um, We haven't been able to attract the same numbers of people into this field. And we need families in there not only to Um, be providing those informal supports that they had been for residents, but also to be eyes and ears of what's happening in these facilities. That was another downfall of completely isolating the residents is there was no one in there who was able to see what actually was happening and to call for help when it was needed or um, to raise the voice of the residents when they weren't receiving the services that they needed. Um, So we need to really learn from the lessons of the pandemic and not go back to restricting visitation. We need to focus on proper visitation and safe visitation and incorporating proper infection prevention and control while allowing people in. All fantastic points. I think my frustration around a lot of what you just said relates to the fact that we know staff was trying their hardest and they were going absolutely out of balance, right? Their life and maintaining infection prevention measures while at home and, and going back and even staff trying their hardest, it still got in. 
and people were still yeah. staff were impacted. Right? Absolutely, lost their lost their lives in residents. But now, as visitation has reopened, I've kind of seen through news articles, through other um, conversations, sort of this blame on well, now families bringing this in. No, right. people, this is something that transmit from person transmits from person to person, and right. so now saying there are some cases where potentially it's come in due to a visit, due to a family member who may be there providing other types of support, um, quality of life, dignity, helping someone who's experiencing failure to thrive, weight loss, but to no more degree. And I would, I would argue to a much less degree, they really get their loved ones sick. They're doing everything they can to help prevent, prevent that. Then when staff were having access and, and bringing the virus in. Um, right. Again, with no intention there. And so that frustration to me is why I'm starting to ask why. Well, why wouldn't they want individuals in? Um, making sure that the eyes and ears for other types of abuse, neglect, and exploitation um, are in these homes and have the ability to communicate privately with residents that my team members from the ombudsman's office have the ability to communicate privately and to have complaints filed in a way that's confidential. You know, I think that that's really important during this time when there is, there just is less staff. And the staff does that. We're getting calls from staff as well saying we don't have the individuals we need in order to appropriately support this person. Right. That's That's been certainly a huge issue. And, you know, we staff have been completely overwhelmed um, by this pandemic and they've been, I know the word heroic has been used a lot to describe um, staff working in the healthcare setting. I mean, they have really taken on just a tremendous, um, tremendous task. I mean, certainly, you know, it's part of the work that they're doing, but it's been so much more than I think anyone ever anticipated. And um, what's being asked of them is so much more than what's uh, what anyone has ever anticipated as well. They need supports. I mean, the staff don't get the support that they need. They're not paid adequately. They don't have the benefits that they need. They're not given the workforce supports and even the training that's necessary to adequately adequately provide help. Um, so why put an additional burden on them by keeping family members out who can be a source of additional support for um, the people that they're able to provide even just a little bit of assistance to? If, if, if a family member is able to go in and, and help comfort their loved one who may be experiencing anxiety or um, may help to feed someone who takes, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes to completely finish a meal because they need to eat very slowly. If family members can provide those additional extra supports, we would want them to do that because the alternative is that the residents are not getting the care and services that they need. The staff don't have time to spend 45 minutes feeding one individual person. And while certainly we should be staffed that way so that they could, that's the that's you know what the standard should be. The reality of today is that we don't have it. And so let um, let's ensure that residents are getting the necessary supports by having family go back in. We can't keep them out at this point. It would just do too much detriment to the residents and and also put more burden on the staff. I totally agree. And to your point, things we haven't given staff, we haven't given staff time, the time, time. to recuperate, the time to respond and to be able to 
um, work a shift and go home and not feel like if they don't stay and work another shift, no one's going to be there to care for the individuals that they're there every day to care for um, and that they don't rely on them. Uh, we hear from staff, I'm so, sorry, from residents every single day that staff are picking up shift after shift, working seven, 10 days without, let alone one shift off, but a day off. And so how do we, how do we better support that? And I think to your point, having family members um, continue to be able to have access, right? We're encouraging, um, I know in our state, we are really encouraging here um, vaccinations, booster shots, um, testing. If people have access to tests prior to going in, that that would be ideal, right? That's the highest threshold of infection prevention. Um, wearing masks, well-fitting masks, um, standing at a distance, all those type of things where you can be there for the person, but whenever possible, using those other hand hygiene and uh, mechanisms to keep people safe. Absolutely. And I, I think families, you know, I know that families during this time um, of the pandemic, when they were separated from their loved ones, you know, we heard many families say, I'll do whatever is necessary, whatever is being asked of me in order to be able to go in and provide that assistance. And, and we need families to continue to do that. So, for example, to your point, we need you as family members to continue to make sure that you're following proper protocols when you go in, make sure you're masked. Um, make sure that you don't have symptoms of COVID. If you can take a test before you go in, please do that. Get vaccinated and get your boosters. Those are the things that are most likely to protect residents. That what we that's what we've seen has been most effective in ensuring that the numbers of COVID transmission are decreasing and that people are not facing the effects of it. But while you're in there, wash your hands and, and keep your distance from other people and follow those protocols so that that also doesn't put an extra burden on staff to have to be reminding you to do that. Uh, it, we're still in the midst of this pandemic and trying to stem the spread. Um, and we all need to follow those proper infection prevention protocols. Um, you know, in terms of work that we're doing, we're also focused on policy issues and, and encouraging the wider availability of vaccines and boosters and the availability of tests so that people are able to best protect themselves. Um, and also to support um, staff um, at the policy level, you know, contacting your members of Congress and your legislators to support staff um, and provide the necessary policies to increase wages, for example, and increase staffing levels and to provide more benefits for them so that they are best equipped to care for our loved ones that are living in these facilities. People who listen to this podcast regularly will recognize what Lori's talking about as we just had Toby and Cinnamon on from the Center for Medicare Advocacy talking about the provisions in the Build Back Better um, proposal related to long-term care and how important these provisions are. Um, and to really have the ability to highlight and hone in on what the needs are for individuals um, living in these settings. And I would argue, I would love to get up to a point where we really start to see it as individuals who, for some reason, need support for long-term services and supports. Where they choose to receive them, I don't really think should um, change anything for them. They should have the same access to community, to the individuals who best support them, um, individual caregivers, uh, to essential caregivers. So the things that I know you've worked on with our office and with um, state ombudsman across the country is the essential caregivers bill and being able to support that, the idea of that. And 
an essential support person for anyone who needs it related to their long-term services and support. So all of these provisions during this period of time, you know, anyone out there taking the opportunity to call your um, elected officials, both at a state and federal level, share your stories, tell them how you were impacted and why it's important that they really continue to focus on um, as this is getting out of the news a little bit, right? We're not seeing the same attention mm-hmm. to our long-term care issues. Having them really pay attention to how this impacts individuals in their own community and that they are elected to serve I think is really important. To that point, our next podcast um, coming up will be with Toby and Cinnamon again on what's to come. What do we think is going to come this next year? Kind of reflecting on what happened last year and what do we see coming in the future. Any words of wisdom from you, Lori, that you think you know, we should be paying attention to or um, that people can either look forward to or look out for in the coming year? Well, I mean, you did mention the Build Back Better bill, and I think that what that does for us, it provides a framework for improving long-term care, and that's certainly something that we've been promoting, not only the provisions that would provide more support for staff in that bill, but also better expansion of home and community-based services so that people have access to where they want to receive services and can and can choose um, where that would happen. So the, that's a really important provision. But I think, you know, as we look at the provision of long-term care, we need to do so much more. There are other bills pending in Congress that would provide additional, additional supports to help revolutionize the industry a little bit more in terms of providing transparency of information and um, pilot programs to um, really promote um, smaller or changes in the way nursing homes are structured and the way they operate um, to more uh, smaller buildings and providing more focus on person-centered care, which is care that revolves around the individual and ensuring that your needs are being met and that you're not following someone else's routine, and which is really important also. Um, so there are some good proposals that are pending right now that I think we can all be advocating for. We'll certainly be sharing more about them. Um, but I, you know, I think as we look forward, there are some, you know, real core messages across the board that we've been focused on. Certainly one relates to Um, staffing and the importance of staff, ensuring that they're well-supported, well-trained, that they have enough supports um, and uh, resources in order to do their jobs. Um, Transparency of information I mentioned, which is really critical. We need to know who owns these long-term care facilities, who are the operators, who's responsible for making those decisions. And also we need good accountability for these people to meet standards and provide the best care possible, um, as well as be good stewards of the billions of federal dollars that go into this industry and ensure that it's being spent properly on resident care and that that's where the bulk of the money is going. Um, And so there are a lot of proposals that kind of, you know, work around um, these different issues, but those are things that certainly we're, um, we're promoting. And I think that if we focus on those things, we can certainly get to the provision of better care and better services for the people who need them. You said a few things I think that are so meaningful there and it have been focused on for a long period of time, but again, really called to attention now. And one is transparency. Really, who are the owners? 
Um, what other companies do they own that may be benefiting from the funds that they're receiving in this setting? Are they using them appropriately? I think for many of the family members that I talked to, they were really surprised to hear that companies owned ancillary services, that the way that the money was spent and that accountability. Truly thankful that that's something that there's a focus on and that we're going to continue to look at because it is incredibly important when you're talking about changing the system mm-hmm. and the ability to move forward in a way that really highlights the individual. You also talked about person-centered care plans and person-centered care. Um, and for people out there, it's really about talking to the individual, understanding their goals, and then looking at the care team and how the people as part of the care team, both in the facility, outside of the facility, part of their community, can help that individual meet those goals and live the highest quality of life and the best day you know, mm-hmm. they can have. And we often say that to a resident, like, what does your ideal day look like? Right. How do we help write a plan for people to be able to see that and work with you to reach that? And I think that's the goal. I think that's what we're all working towards. Um, exactly. Exactly. And people should be able to have that best day no matter where they live. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that um, people may not understand is just because you live in a long-term care facility, a nursing home, an assisted living facility, doesn't mean you shouldn't have those best days and be able to make those decisions for yourself. You absolutely should. Um, and that's absolutely what we're working for. Awesome. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for being here with me today. Um, We'll be sure to have you on again while we hear um, there are changes federally. We'll bring you back to see if you have any comment on and can shed some light on what's happening federally for our listeners. Sure. Uh, Thank you all for listening today. This is Mairead Painter with Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. You can continue to listen to the podcast um, on Apple or anywhere else that you get your podcasts.